For nearly 2,000 years, the barrel was the easiest and most convenient transportation method. Its trademark flat bottoms and rounded outsides allowed the barrel to store the most amount of product without ever being too heavy to move. Simply pop it on its side and roll it wherever it needs to go, then stack one on another. Barrels were also sturdy and easily made watertight, allowing a variety of goods, including food and drink, to be transported from port to port. As innocuous as the barrow's history might initially appear, certainly not innocent. There's even a phrase for it, over a barrel. Throughout history, there have been many that have, well, found themselves over a barrel, or even in one. Welcome to Creep, the podcast that explores true crime, unexplained mysteries, and unnerving circumstances. You could say that I'm a fan of barrels, if that's even a thing. A barrel file, I suppose. I find them fascinating, like how different barrels can be used to create different styles of liquor. In order to label your product straight whiskey, for example, at least in the United States, you must store the product in new charred oak barrels. And cognac, a type of brandy, is only aged in oak barrels made from one specific forest in France. Barrels are even used to store and age the famous Tabasco sauce. But the thing I find most fascinating about barrels is not just their long history in crafting some of my favorite beverages, but also their dark, deathly history. One of the more interesting usages of barrels has to be tied to Niagara Falls. Nearly 40 people find themselves being swept over the falls each year, with the total death count estimated to be over 5,000. Although the majority of deaths have been the result of suicide, some have willingly gone over the falls, with varying degrees of success. Currently, the survival rate of daredevils going over the falls is at 25%. Not great odds, if you ask me. The house, or in this case the falls, always wins, one way or another. There's two cases of unsuccessful attempts over the falls that I find most fascinating. The first is the case of Charles Stevens, which caught my attention because of his nickname, the Demon Barber of Bedminster. Having recently watched the charming love story of the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, I couldn't help but wonder what Charles Stevens and Sweeney Todd might have in common. There's not much I can find about the term Demon Barber, but it seems it has less to do with slicing up customers into meat pies and more to do with simply being an amazing barber, with a flair for showmanship. Charles, or Charlie as he was known among friends, was always looking for stunts he could pull in order to support his wife and eleven children. He would shave guests in a cage with a live lion, no doubt an early version of Siegfried and Roy. He would parachute out of planes, but it wasn't enough for Charlie. He wanted something newer and more dangerous to attempt. That's when he decided to try his luck over Niagara Falls in a barrel. But not just any barrel. Charlie took every precaution. He hired a barrel maker to use the best quality wood and even had a light strung up inside. The barrel was very large and quite spacious, enough room for Charlie to bring on board an anvil for a ballast. Charlie wasn't the first person to attempt a trip over the falls, but he would be the first to receive an award for it. On July 11, 1920, Charlie ducked into the barrel and closed the door, anvil in tow. 
His advisors, fellow Niagara Daredevils Bobby Leach and William Redhill Sr., had warned him to test the barrel before doing the stunt live, but Charlie was confident in his barrel, which had cost him a cool 20 pounds. He was from the UK, remember. This was his life savings. Now, I can see both sides. What if the test was successful but damaged the barrel enough to render it useless a second time? Charlie just didn't have another 20 pounds to spend on a second barrel. He'd make one attempt and claim fame and fortune, like his predecessor and mentor, Bobby Leach, who'd successfully gone over a barrel in 1911, though it took a six-month recovery. Like I said, the house, or the falls, always wins, one way or another. The stunt proved to be Charlie's last as the anvil sealed his fate. The barrel hit the bottom with such force that the only thing ever recovered was a single piece of oak, and Charlie's right arm still attached to the safety harness. Remember that award I mentioned earlier? Yeah, it was the Darwin Award. The other interesting story to come from Niagara Falls is fascinating because, well, even though the trip was technically successful, it still proved fatal to one of the two passengers aboard the barrel. On the 4th of July in 1930, George Stathicus, a Greek immigrant and chef living in Buffalo, New York, decided that he wanted to take the dangerous trip over the falls in the barrel. There's strange footage of the fateful trip on YouTube, George happily getting into the barrel and his pet turtle named Sonny handed in after him. Next, the boat pulls the barrel with George and Sonny out toward the falls and releases it, the barrel bobbing faster and faster till it goes over, to the excitement of the large 4th of July crowd waiting with intense interest. However, to everyone's dismay, the barrel doesn't emerge on the other side. It was trapped behind a curtain of water, unable to be recovered for 18 hours. When the barrel was finally opened, George was found to have suffocated, since the barrel only held enough oxygen for eight hours. Sonny the turtle, however, was alive and well and pulled from the barrel and held out to the smiling onlookers, presumably while George's body was still in the barrel. One can only assume it had to do with the fact that George was an eccentric bachelor, and the crowd was simply happy to see something, anything, survive the journey. The barrel wasn't always used as an instrument for stunts and amusements. In earlier times, it was used as a method of torture dating back to ancient Rome. Used as a form of humiliation for drunkards, a person was placed in either an open-bottom or closed-bottom barrel, and secured at the neck so only their head was out of a hole in the top of the barrel. If the bottom was open, the drunk was forced to walk the streets in a humiliating display. Shame. 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 If the barrel bottom was closed, the person was forced to sit in their own wastes until they were released. In ancient Rome, a criminal could also be placed in a barrel of feces, and every time they came up for air, the executioner would take a swing at their head. If they were able to survive the whole day had intact, they'd receive a pardon. If not, well, losing your head with a swift slice of a sword might be not the worst way to die. In the modern era, barrels have also been used to hide or dispose of bodies, usually of murder victims, as there's no real reason you need to put Granny in a barrel when she passes on. One of the most famous cases was that of Raina Marroquin, a woman that was found mummified inside of a barrel nearly 30 years after her death. On September 2, 1999, an obviously aged 55-gallon barrel in the crawl space of a New York home 
was found to contain a mummified pregnant woman. According to the autopsy, cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, and along with finding the body in a barrel, murder was immediately suspected. Inside the barrel was also two rings, one with the inscription MHR, a locket that read to Patrice, love Uncle Phil, polystyrene pellets, green dye, and an address book. It's really pretty amazing, if you think about it, that they were able to determine not only the identity of the woman, but also likely her killer, simply from the items found in the barrel, and the barrel itself. Looking closely at the barrel revealed it was used to transport dye, and the markings on it indicated it was shipped to Melrose Plastics, a company owned by businessman Howard B. Elkins. In an uncanny coincidence, it was discovered the former owner of the home where the barrel was located was also none other than Howard B. Elkins. Using infrared technology, investigators found the name Reina Angelica Marroquin inside the address book found in the barrel. They found out that Reina Marroquin was a 28-year-old immigrant from El Salvador who had worked as a nanny for the owner of a manufacturer of synthetic flowers at a factory in East 34th Street, Manhattan. None other than, you guessed it, Howard B. Elkins. In the address book was also a phone number for Kathy Andrade, who had been a friend of Marroquin. When called, Andrade told the police that Marroquin had been having an extramarital affair with Elkins, but had called Andrade to tell her she had become afraid of him after telling Elkins' wife about the affair. Andrade went to Marroquin's apartment but found it empty, and she was never heard from again. Police were able to locate Elkins, who at that point was living in a Boca Raton retirement community. They asked for a DNA sample to compare to the fetus sample, but he was uncooperative and refused to provide a sample. The next day, he was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. DNA testing after his death proved that he was, in fact, the father of the unborn child, to no one's great surprise. The story, unfortunately, could have avoided the tragic turn, as Mara Keane had called the police for help, fearing that Elkins was coming to kill her. Instead, New Jersey police failed to follow up on the call. The barrel has a long history of being used to hide bodies and a disturbing connection to early American mafiosi. In researching the use of barrels as a quick and easy body dump by the mafia, I learned that mafia members, along with being called mobsters, can also be called individually mafioso or mafiosi for plural. Or mobster still works too. It's believed that the Mafia has used the barrel to dispose of bodies since the 1870s, although the earliest reported deaths in New York were in 1895 and 1900. After killing their victim, the body would be put inside a barrel and then simply abandoned or even shipped to a fictitious address. In recent times, the body of Johnny Roselli, an influential mobster that had helped the Mafia gain control of the Las Vegas Strip and Hollywood, was found in a barrel off the coast of Florida in 1976. Although the case has never been officially solved, some speculate he was not murdered by mobsters, but perhaps his body was put in a barrel to cast the blame on the mob. Roselli had a lot of enemies. It's believed he was skimming profits from the Las Vegas casinos, and he was also recruited by the CIA in a plot called Operation Mongoose to assassinate Fidel Castro. Roselli had been receptive to the plot since the Cuban Revolution in 1959 had driven out all of the casinos from Cuba. The CIA had provided poison pills to the mafia to put in Castro's food or drink, but was ultimately unsuccessful. 
Not only was it unsuccessful, but there were strong indications that the mob members that Roselli recruited to carry out the assassination, and even possibly Roselli himself, were instead turned by Castro and tasked with assassinating John F. Kennedy. Another mobster indicated Roselli as being the trigger man in an early Kennedy assassination attempt. After testifying to his involvement in Operation Mongoose, Roselli disappeared before he could testify about his involvement in the conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Shortly before that, fellow mob boss, Sam Giancana, one of the other mob bosses recruited by the CIA, was found murdered in his home. Roselli's body was found later in the barrel. There's something really fascinating about how versatile the barrel is. Some use it to store a body, some use it to age rum, and some, well, some use it for both. On January 3rd, 1891, an edition of the Wagga Wagga Advertiser, an Australian newspaper that still runs today simply as The Advertiser, reported the most gruesome of tales. The report was straight to the point, simply titled, A Human Body in a Barrel of Rum. The report reads, whether the wine merchant of Nancy in France, who recently sent a friend a barrel of rum containing a human body, that of the wine merchant's wife, mistook one barrel for another, will probably never be known, remarks the London Standard, since he has committed suicide. But the inference is that he did send this particular barrel of rum by mistake. He had promised a friend a present of the kind, and the recipients of spirits on arrival of the barrel hastened to taste its contents he found that the rum had a singular flavor. He retasted it without changing his opinion, and ultimately, in order to learn what there might be abnormal in the cask, he took out the head of it. A more lugubrious and terrifying discovery than which awaited him can scarcely be conceived. The cask contained the mortal remains of Madame Lobon, the wine merchant's wife, who had disappeared in mysterious circumstances some three weeks previously. The police were, of course, at once communicated with, and a couple of agents were dispatched to the wine merchant's house, but only to find that he had destroyed himself. So the secret of who killed his wife, why the rum cask was chosen to hide the body in, and whether, intentionally or not, it was sent as a present, will remain a secret, unless any of the several persons arrested on suspicion of having had a hand in the crime should enlighten justice and solve the mystery. I, of course, wonder what exactly was that singular taste that raised suspicions. Although the crime didn't take place in Australia and was simply reported in the local Australian newspaper Wagga Wagga, Australia has had its own fair share of bodies found in barrels. The most infamous and shocking was the serial murders and dumpings of bodies in Snowtown, a tiny town of under 500 residents in South, South Australia. In this tiny town, eight bodies were found dismembered and stuffed in barrels in an unused bank vault. Later, two more bodies were found buried in the backyard of a home in Adelaide. The murder sprees were committed by John Bunting, his neighbor Robert Wagner, and John Bunting's stepson, James Vlasicus. The fourth man, Mark Hayden, was also implicated in the murders, but was only charged in helping dispose the bodies. According to the murderers, they felt they were doing a service to the community by killing those they believed were pedophiles, homosexuals, or of weak character. 
In some cases, the victims were horrifically tortured before being killed, dismembered, and put into barrels. Wagner said later at his sentencing, pedophiles were doing terrible things to children. The authorities didn't do anything about it. I decided to take action. I took that action. Thank you. According to the reports, the victims were all known to the men involved, either direct acquaintances or even a close friend, relative, or in one case, spouse. What's so interesting in this case is that one of the men, Robert Wagner, was actually in a romantic relationship with a cross-dressing gay man named Barry, a.k.a. Vanessa Lane, when he met his new neighbor, John Bunting, in 1991. Six years later, in 1997, Lane would become the fifth victim in their murder spree. He was tortured with his toes crushed by pliers. Two of his former partners were involved in his murder, both Robert Wagner and Thomas Trevelyan. Thomas, who was only 18, was later found hanging from a tree, thought to have committed suicide. Later, it was determined he was murdered, presumably for discussing the murder of Barry Lane with others. Mark Hayden, the fourth accomplice to the murderers, was never convicted of murder due to a hung jury, and instead took a guilty plea to helping dispose of the bodies of his wife, Elizabeth Hayden, and Troy Ude, the half-brother of James Vlasicus. According to prosecutors, Hayden had laughed when Bunting opened the large barrel to show him the disfigured remains of his wife, including her severed hands. It was an incestuous murder group, with charming Bunting having his accomplices find and lure their own friends and family to their death. Only a couple of the victims were simply known of by the group. The vast majority were closely connected to one of the perpetrators. The last murder, and only murder to technically take place in Snowtown, resulted in a scene straight from a horror movie. The victim, David Johnson, was a stepbrother to Vlasicus, meaning that Vlasicus was responsible for the murders of his two siblings by marriage. Robert Wagner admitted to frying and eating the flesh of Johnson and sharing it with the others as they dismembered the body and stuffed it into a barrel. One of the officers later said about the crime, It was a scene from the worst nightmare you've ever had. I don't think any of us were ever prepared for what we saw. Inside of the bank was a variety of tools used to torture, kill, and even eat their final victim, including knives, a blood-stained saw, double-barreled shotgun, coils of rope, rolls of tape, rubber gloves, cloths, and a variac metallurgy tool that the killers would use to administer electric shocks to genitals and other sensitive parts of their victims' bodies. As horrific as the Snowtown murders were, at the very least the victims were identified and their families had the closure of knowing who was responsible. That's not always the case. In Bear Brook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire, the bodies of four female victims were found skeletonized in plastic barrels. In 1985, a hunter found the first barrel with the bodies of an adult woman and a young child. In 2000, another barrel with the remains of two young girls was also found. At least two of the victims were determined to have died from blunt force trauma. DNA testing revealed that the older adult female was related to two of the girls, either their mother, older sister, or an aunt. The third child was recently matched in 2017 to convicted murderer Terry Petter Rasmussen. Terry, or Bob Evans as he was also known, 
was linked to a long list of deaths and mystery, including the suspected murder of his girlfriend, Denise Boudin, a 23-year-old New Hampshire woman last seen in 1981. After presumably killing her, Terry kept her infant daughter Dawn before abandoning the girl in 1986. Now known as Lisa, she's alive and well, now with her own family, trying not to dwell in the past. Terry has also admitted to killing and dismembering a Californian woman named Unsoon June shortly after eloping in their backyard ceremony in 2002. Although New Hampshire believes they know who took the lives of the four victims in the barrel, Terry died in prison seven years earlier in 2010, and the case of the four victims in the barrel will never be solved, nor were the victims ever identified. Barrels themselves have also been outfitted as weapons of mass destruction, known as barrel bombs. Used in warfare by Israeli, U.S., and Syrian forces, barrels were an inexpensive way to pack a large amount of explosives into a compact and, well, easy-to-move form of transportation. It's surprising, really, that humans could take something that started so innocently, a simple means to transport goods, and bastardize it into a killing machine. Barrel bombs are not only deadly, but they don't discriminate against the innocent. It's impossible to accurately aim a barrel being dropped out of a plane, which is why they are banned by the UN. However, it hasn't prevented their use since their construction is cheap, $200 to $300 per barrel, and they don't look like a traditional bomb. There's no red wires, digital numbers, or ticking noises. No, barrel bombs are much worse because they can camouflage in their environment. They can be filled with explosives or, as reported in recent years, chemical weapons. The barrel, like any other tool known to man, has a tumultuous history. Hammers can be used to build houses or to crush in a skull. Guns can be used to put food on the table or to destroy an innocent life. Chlorine can help sanitize pools and water supplies or used to torture civilian lives. Even something as nondescript and normal as a simple barrel has the capacity for unspeakable horrors in the right or wrong hands. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you on our next episode of Creep.
Special thanks to Scott Buckley for the music used in this episode. If you're looking for great music to use for free in your next project, visit www.scottbuckley.com.au.